Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home to some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick, your host for the Double Truck Stories podcast. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When you picture any tennis player, the common image is someone with a racket in their hand. But what happens to that player when the ability to do that is taken from them? And not by father time or some chronic injury, but by the knife of an attacker. That's the question that Wimbledon champion Petra Kvitova has been answering for us ever since she had her left hand severely damaged during a burglary at her home in December of 2016. The struggle to get to the top in tennis is grueling, and it's a story that's been written before. But the struggle to go from victim to champion? That story is still being written. Stick around after the story for my conversation with ESPN senior writer Bonnie Ford as we talk about how challenging yourself might be the greatest motivator of all. Now we present Bonnie Ford's profile of Petra Kvitova. Holding her own. Consider her grip. It is the most unseen element of her skill set, yet the essence of her game flows from its control and precision. The shifting configuration of her palm and fingers on the rounded octagonal handle determines the angle of the racket face, which in turn dictates the pace, spin, and trajectory of a shot. The fan's eye naturally tracks elsewhere. The ball, her feet, her outstretched arm, her expression. But Petra Kvitova's dominant hand, armored with calluses and trained like a trellised vine around the same shape since childhood, is at the root of her strength. And now... Imagine that grip closing over the cutting edge of a knife with all the adrenaline of self-defense and the force of a two-time Wimbledon champion and yanking it away from her throat where an intruder had held it. The blade bit deeply into the fingers of Kvitova's left hand. She flexes the hand in late April, almost a year and a half later, to demonstrate that she can't clench her fist in celebration quite as tightly as before. Her long fingers curl into her palm, leaving a small space at the center, as if she's cupping something fragile. The scars are thin and faint, but residual clumsiness still causes her to fumble with objects sometimes. I'm happy that I have all of my fingers at the end of the day, Kudova says. She's feeling light and grateful on the day before her opening match at the WTA tournament in Prague an event she watched from the stands last year, not yet ready to test her hand in a match. A jazz recording crooned softly in the lounge of the downtown Intercontinental Hotel, where Kvitova has permitted herself a slice of chocolate cake and a cappuccino with soy milk. Being in the top ten, it's a little bit weird for me, says Kvitova, 28. In a year? I couldn't really expect that. But when the last season finished, I was already feeling more normal. To have the same start of the season as the other girls, same off-season preparation, everything. So, I feel normal. At the behest of investigators, Kvitova has never divulged the details of what happened in her apartment on December 20th, 2016. She would rather not return to that moment anyway. It's what she did with it that matters and explains how she has created an extraordinary new normal. Kvitova wins her opening match in Prague the next morning before a full house of fans who were turned away peer through a hedge and a windscreen in hopes of catching a glimpse of her on the tidy center court. She wins the next four matches and the tournament. She moves on to Madrid and runs the table, then travels to Paris and wins her first two French Open matches, before finally yielding after 13 straight victories on clay. Three weeks later, she defends her 2017 title on grass in Birmingham, England. It is Kvitova's sixth tournament win since her comeback from the attack, and her fifth this season. Now ranked eighth in the world, she has vaulted firmly into contention for a third Wimbledon championship. The rectangular green jewel box of center court is never far from her mind. The first thing she asks Rada Keberle, the surgeon who operated on her hand, when he visits her bedside the day after her four-hour surgery is, Pane doctore, poiedu na Wimbledon? Doctor, will I go to Wimbledon? At the moment, I thought, you are crazy. 
Keverleaf says later, almost whispering the word. Your injury is so difficult. We're talking about if I will be able to brush my teeth and do all my things and use my hand. And you want to ask, of course, I understood the question. And I told her, we'll do everything to get you there. But Keverley doesn't sugarcoat it. 10%, he tells her, that is his estimate of her chances to come back at the elite level. Rehab will be slow and hard, and he will need her full concentration and cooperation. She waits until he leaves before she allows herself to cry, and then she grabs the slim lifeline he has cast in her direction and refuses to let go. Kvitova seems to have emerged from nowhere, fully formed, when she is named WTA Newcomer of the Year in 2010. Mere months later, she upsets Maria Sharapova to win the 2011 Wimbledon Championship as her childhood idol, Czech-born icon and fellow lefty Martina Navratilova, applauds from the stands. In fact, Kvitova's early career is less observed than many. Western reporters wrestle with the consonants in her last name, pronounced Kvitova, three syllables please, not Kvitova, and her unlikely, uncommonly quiet backstory. It takes more than three hours to get from Prague to Kvitova's hometown of Fulnek, population 6,000, on the country's perpetually congested highway system. A castle perches in the hills above a small commercial district that includes a household appliance company where her mother, Pavla, once worked in the purchasing department. Her father, Yerji, a retired teacher, spent his spare time hitting with his sons, Yerji and Libor, and their much younger sister on the town's clay tennis courts. It's easy to see how her father's passion and her mother's composure merged in Kvitova, as her parents sit in the kitchen area of a new two-story clubhouse completed last year, overlooking four clay tennis courts. Petra donated the money to build the clubhouse, and her junior trophies sit atop the cabinet that holds cups and saucers. Petra sprouts early and slender and gifted, but her parents don't have the money or the inclination to send her away to hone her talent. School is the priority, and there are days when she has time to play for only an hour. By age 16, she stands out enough to be spotted by a scout from the regional tennis center in Prostyov, about an hour away. Yerzy Kvita, a big-framed man with salt-and-pepper hair who shares his daughter's penchant for self-deprecating humor, does most of the talking through an interpreter, while his wife takes in the scene with her steady brown eyes and adds an occasional detail. It's hard when your child leaves, Yerzy says. It wasn't until she was 16 that she went to Prostyov occasionally, and it wasn't until she was 17 that she stayed. They insist that she finish her last year of high school via independent study, even as she begins to travel. Years later, at the most uncertain point of her post-attack recovery, she taps into an old habit and enrolls in a university course. Kvitova thrives in Prostyov, where many prominent Czech players have come of age. The complex includes a stadium with a retractable roof, multiple outdoor courts, a gym, dorms, and a restaurant. It is one of many arms of the Czech tennis industry presided over by Kvitova's early patron and Czech business manager, Miroslav Chernosek, whose company also owns the Prague tournament. At age 21, after uncorking an ace to put away Sharapova at Wimbledon, Kvitova is still unaccustomed to the spotlight, especially when it includes a microphone. Her voice shakes as she speaks on court during the trophy ceremony. At the champion's ball, pressed to say a few words, she tries to describe her thoughts on match point. I have a chance now, and you never know if it will be more or no. Okay, you have to do it, and I did it. Katie Spellman, then working in communications for the WTA, watches and listens. She's seen Vidova interact with the Czech press and knows she loves to banter. Once she becomes Kvitova's public relations manager in 2012, they work at bridging the language gap. Spellman gives, Kvitova, Spellman gives Kvitova a copy of the children's book, The Secret Garden, to broaden her vocabulary and shows her transcripts of post-match interviews by Sharapova and Roger Federer. By the time Kvitova wins Wimbledon again in 2014, 
she is able to speak with far more fluidity and nuance. She now routinely laces answers with idiomatic English. What is the key to playing well on clay? She repeats in response to a question this spring. Tough to say. If I know the key, I would already use it. She wears her fame more easily now as she walks through public spaces, unmistakable at six feet tall, with stylishly tousled blonde hair that she pulls back into a thick braid when she plays, and a pale blue-eyed gaze that can be almost disconcertingly direct. Her father asks the reporters who have come to Fulneck to let the world know that he and his wife are not haughty, greater-than-thou types. He is the one who cannot contain his tears when Petra wins Wimbledon for the first time, his face working with failed effort, while Pavla smiles serenely at her daughter. His face crumples briefly with a different emotion at the memory of the morning they learned Petra had been attacked. Horrible he says hoarsely. When we say happy birthday, I wish you a lot of luck and a lot of health, it's no longer a cliche for us. Her family's small-town humility remains at Kvitova's core. As the coffee break at the Intercontinental winds down, she offers to pay and is rebuffed, then won't leave the table until the check is signed, not wanting to strand the interviewer by herself. Following the attack, Kvitova's fellow WTA players, who voted her winner of the circuit's sportsmanship award for grace on and off the court six out of the past seven years, fill Twitter with peons and blow up her phone with supportive messages. When world number one Simona Halep breaks through to win in June at Roland Garros after falling short in three previous major finals, she reveals that Kvitova had sent her private notes of encouragement. She said, it's going to come. I just have to keep working. The goodwill that envelops Kvitova makes the events of 18 months ago even more unfathomable. Alone in the back seat of a hired car on that December morning, facing a tedious 145-mile ride to a specialized hospital north of Prague where Keberle, one of the foremost hand surgeons in the country, is expecting her, Kvitova doesn't dwell on why me. There is only what now? Her wounds have been disinfected and swaddled in a cooling wrap at a local hospital in Prostyov. She and her brother, Yerji, have gone back to the flat where she was attacked to gather a few personal items and the Christmas gifts she bought for her family. When they close the door, she is resolved never to return. Kvitova's mind tunnels into a place where she is in control. She has obligations. She has already contacted Chernesek whom she was expected to join at a charity event that day. He arranges for the car she is in now and the security guard who will be posted by her room after the surgery. There are other people who need to know. She is a celebrity and the news will leak fast. One-handed, she hits contacts on her phone, taps out texts, and records voice messages. A part of her is in shreds, but her mind is clear. She reaches Marine Ball, her agent at IMG, at 4.59 a.m. Eastern Time and tells him, through tears, that she is not going to be able to play in the Australian Open next month. Ball thinks she is referring to a previously diagnosed stress fracture in her right foot. It's okay, he says. Let's get healthy. No, she says. Something just happened. She confers with Ball in Florida, Spellman in Toronto, and Czech tennis press officer Karel Tekal in Prague. She tells them what she wants. They will post statements she helps shape, saying she is shaken but determined. She wants to speak to the media as soon as she's released so she can spend the holiday in peace with her family. Her fitness trainer, David Vidra, will meet her at the hospital, along with her good friend, doubles specialist Lucy Radeska. She tells everyone else to stay home that she will be fine. I've seen Petra cope with nerves that would put anyone else in a dark room, trembling in a corner, Spellman says. She was so nervous before the 2014 Wimbledon final with Jeannie Bouchard, and then she won in two sets, and everyone saw what she did with those nerves. I guess when you're a champion, and you're able to cope with all those emotions on the court, and stick to your processes, that's a big part of what players are taught to do, 
she was able to apply that. She was the protagonist, and everyone else followed her lead. Twenty minutes after Kvitova arrives, Keberle surveys the damage in the operating room. The knife has done its worst on her left index finger, which is slashed to the bone and hanging loose at the last knuckle. Seven flexor tendons, which give the hand its prehensile grasping ability, are severed in her fingers and thumb, their ends separated like snapped rubber bands. The ulnar digital nerves of her thumb and index finger will have to be repaired. There is no guarantee she will ever regain feeling there. Keberle takes his time with the multiple incisions and uses suturing material that will dissolve. He inserts a pin in the finger that was nearly amputated. Because Keberle treats other tennis players for various hand and wrist ailments, he is hyper-aware of where they develop blisters and calluses and where scar tissue will be the most problematic. He tries not to leave any more than he has to. He does not sleep well that night. I knew who I am treating. I knew her needs, and I knew she is in a very big danger of not coming back, says the shaggy-haired Keberle, a 20-year veteran in his field with a kindly face and a frank manner. I said I was afraid of my own ass, because at the end, if she does not come back, everybody will connect me. I was the one who finished the career of Petra Kvitova. The trouble with this injury is you have to treat it, and then you have to mobilize it from day two, day three. You have to try to move the tendon, but you cannot pull on it. I knew who I am treating, I knew her needs, and I knew she is in a very big danger of not coming back, says the shaggy-haired Keberle, a 20-year veteran in his field with a kindly face and a frank manner. I said I was afraid of my own ass, because at the end, if she does not come back, everybody will connect me. I was the one who finished the career of Petra Kvitova. The trouble with this injury is you have to treat it, and then you have to mobilize it from day two, day three. You have to try to move the tendon, but you cannot pull on it so it doesn't rupture. And the wound, it wants to have rest for healing, but you must mobilize it. So it's kind of a slalom in between. On the second day after her surgery, Vidova places her right fingertips on her left fingers and gently, incrementally, begins to press. The physical aspect of rehabilitation comes easily to Kvitova, even when it's painful. She amasses a collection of splints, some to extend her damaged fingers, others to help them bend. She has a ravenous desire to hold a racket again, even if she can't fully feel it, even though she will have to start out by hitting foam balls, like a kid in a beginner's class. Intermittent flashbacks and anxiety are more problematic. She works with a mental coach, who urges her to channel her mind toward the small accomplishments of each day and week, to steer her mind's eye toward cheerful images of her nieces and nephew. But there are some situations she has to confront by herself. Three weeks after surgery, she walks into an empty shower stall at the Sparta Praha Club after working out on a stationary bike, hyper-aware of her surroundings. I didn't think too much about the past, she says with remembered enthusiasm. I was very happy about that. It will be a couple of months before she's willing to rent her own flat in Prague. This isn't the reboot Vidova once envisioned for the 2017 season, when she'd intended to rebuild momentum and mount a campaign for another major. Vidova's serve, powerful forehand, variety, and timing are among the best in tennis, but her high-risk game requires an intensity that she has sometimes struggled to maintain in the seasons following her second Wimbledon title. Her nickname of P3TRA, referring to her tendency to play three-set matches, encapsulates her ability to dig herself out of competitive trouble she would rather avoid. She changes coaches early in the 2016 season and splits up with her fiancé, pro hockey player Radek Meidel, the latest in a string of high-profile companions, including fellow tennis players Adam Pavlicek and Radek Stepanek. Weeks before the attack, she makes another shift, hiring former ATP pro Jerzy Vanyak and telling him, I want to be number one. I want to win one more Grand Slam. I want to do it. I feel it inside, Vanyak recalls. He is impressed by her ambition, but then a stress fracture sidelines her, 
The violent knife attack catapults them into crisis before they've had a single formal practice together. I couldn't stay by myself, Vidova says. Her voice wobbles slightly. I needed help, to be honest. I'm independent, and suddenly I couldn't do anything. Kvitova is afraid to go out alone. She can't drive with her hand immobilized, and she doesn't want to hire a bodyguard. I'm a private, quiet person, she says. It would be terrible to ask someone to go with me to the dinner and stay three tables away. Instead, her coaches become her de facto security detail. She moves in with Vanyak and his family in Prague. Her coach and fitness trainer take turns ferrying her to Keberle's office. The muscular, animated Vidra, a former pro triathlete, chokes up when he talks about that time. The first question was, will she ever play tennis again, he says through an interpreter. I said I am 100% sure that she will. She trusted me, so she then put all into it that she would return. He told her he spoke from authority, having survived a brain aneurysm. I know that even if you are totally dead and you're feeling like you can't do this, if you have a strong head, you can force yourself to get up and to do it. After three months, Kudva is allowed to pick up a racket. Her grip closes around its familiar contours over the next few weeks in a gradual handshake, reacquainting itself. A French hand specialist, Dominique Thomas, treats her twice at his clinic in Grenoble with aggressive electrostimulation therapy. It accelerates her healing, and as Kvitova's optimism grows, she is diligent to a fault. She overworks the hand, and it swells up again. Keverle is concerned about the index finger. If it remains inflexible because of scar tissue, he might have to perform another surgery that will set her back weeks. One day, she hears the finger click and finds she can bend it. Keverle tells her the worst of the adhesions has freed up at last, confirming that holding the racket is actually the best therapy of all. Once she started playing tennis, you could see it from week to week that her function has increased and it started to work as a normal hand, he says. Her progress is kept strictly under wraps as she trains in the Canary Islands and Monaco. She sends video clips of practice to her doctors and her agents, and one day she sends a photo with a caption noting a small off-court victory. I'm holding a wine glass. All the way through, she was saying, this is going to be a challenge, but I love challenges, Spellman says. Maybe nothing else would have given her that motivation if it had just been an injury. It gave her the inner strength to want to prove she could do it. By mid-April 2017, Fidova decides she will try to play at Roland Garros, a month before the doctors initially thought was possible. Her public comeback begins in the interview room in Paris, a session she rehearses with Spellman, trying to anticipate the questions reporters will ask, strategizing what to do if she cries. The lights over the dais make her sweat, but she doesn't wilt or break down. I felt like the tennis was taken away from me, and it wasn't my decision, she says. Suddenly, I couldn't do what I love. I see a little bit from the different angle. So I'm happy that I'm here. Tennis people are welcoming and kind, but they are also unsure how to react, casting covert glances at her hand. She understands why. I saw people very happy to see me back, she says. Then I felt sometimes they were curious how my hand was, but they didn't ask. Uncomfortable. But I think I will be the same as they were. Only Boris Becker, on site as a Eurosport television analyst, asks her about it directly. Kvitova does a credible impersonation of his voice. Petra, show me your hand. She turns it over to display her palm. He exhales and says, Okay. She walks onto center court with her fingernails painted bright red and wins her first match. She loses in the next round, but she has cleared the most important hurdle. Kvitova defies the odds again the next month, knitting together a week's worth of matches on grass to win the Birmingham title in late June. She doesn't even look surprised when she beats Ashley Barty in the final, though she will later say she was awash in disbelief. 
She turns to Banyak and Vidra in the stands after receiving the trophy and says, in Czech, Is this normal? It's an inside joke in her camp, an acknowledgement that they are on uncharted ground. She loses in the second round at Wimbledon but feels encouraged when she reaches the U.S. Open quarterfinals and plays Venus Williams toe-to-toe through three sets. In December 2017, a year after the attack, a Czech publication includes Kvitova and her surgeon in an annual Czechs of the Year photo spread. She is resplendent in a red dress. He is gallantly kissing the left hand he repaired. The image reflects a story moving toward a happy ending, but there's still one critical piece missing. Based on Kvitova's description, police quickly release a sketch of a suspect in his 30s. A few confirmed details make their way into Czech media reports. Kvitova's name was not on the exterior buzzer panel of the five-story building, whose modest appearance betrayed no hint of a millionaire tennis player in residence. The intruder gained access by posing as a utility worker. She was attacked in her bathroom. He made off with a few hundred dollars. The authorities characterized the crime as random, but a month later, a police spokesperson uses the term vidurani, translated as extortion or blackmail in English language reports. Under the Czech Penal Code, the word can simply mean a forcible violent act, and it carries a higher possible sentence when grievous bodily harm is inflicted. In the semantic swirl and the absence of hard information, theories flourish, some fueled by Kvitova's early and successful comeback. Was it really possible that one of the most celebrated athletes in the country could have been an arbitrary target? Were her wounds really that serious? Did police bungle the investigation? Keverly gets calls from colleagues asking if the whole thing is an insurance scam. Keverly gets calls from colleagues asking if the whole thing is an insurance scam. He is unequivocal about the nature of her wounds. The way it's done shows it was a defensive injury. That's the biological reaction of the body. Less for more. I lose my hand, but I will save my life. In August 2017, a frustrated Vitova decides to release the surgeon's graphic before and after photos of her hand shortly before the U.S. Open. Radio silence persists until November, when another police briefing is held to announce that despite hundreds of interviews, tips, and a sizable reward for information, there are no new leads and the case has been shelved. Police spokesman stonewall ESPN's inquiries this spring. A harried but polite receptionist at the Prostyov police station makes phone calls, comes out from behind her desk, and explains there is an embargo. Emailed requests to regional authorities get the same answer, but there is movement behind the scenes. According to recent Czech media accounts, a cold case unit tackles the case early in the year. On the eve of Roland Garros in late May, an unidentified man is taken into custody. News outlets in the Czech Republic report that he had a criminal past, including being a member of a gang that preyed on elderly people. Kvitova initially identifies him through a photo, and then, after she's finished playing in Paris, returns home and picks him out of a lineup. I think I will feel relief when everything is done, she says, after the arrest becomes public knowledge. Obviously, it's great news so far. But when you play, and for example, you have one game to serve for the match, or you have match point, it's close, but it's still far away. So that's how I feel it. Czech law gives authorities wide latitude in holding suspects during investigations, closing hearings, and withholding information. Specific charges could come in late July, according to the latest police statement. Fidva, who continues to refrain from detailing specifics of the attack or discussing legal aspects of the case, says she will not be afraid if and when the time comes to open up. I think I will, I can, but I just can't now because of the police, she says in Prague this spring. But I think I am okay to tell it. I don't have anything to hide. The numbness the knife left might never completely dissipate. Kudova has learned to make a celebratory fist with her other hand. She sometimes kneads the fingers of her left hand with her right while she's at rest, 
trying to coax a little bit more flexibility from them. From my view, it's not really improving much, but I think I'm pretty happy with the way it is anyway, she says after one of her matches at Roland Garros in May. This is Kvitova's new ordinary. It can be traced back to that long car ride when, with her career in limbo, she seized on what she could do rather than what might be lost. Wimbledon is almost upon her again. Simply making the trip will not suffice this year, not after a 38-7 and season that includes titles on hard courts, clay, and grass, raising her own expectations as high as they've ever been. I'm kind of surprised how I handled everything, she says. Obviously, I'm a pretty positive person, but to be positive in this kind of case was just so different. When you lose the match, you can be positive that you have a chance next week, but when I'm going to the hospital without knowing if I can ever have all my fingers back, of course, I didn't want to think too much how bad it can be. Fidvo would not wish what happened to her on anyone, yet the scar tissue that temporarily bound her also led to a profound discovery. The surgeon's skill salvaged her grip, but it was her own handiwork that mattered most in loosening the physical adhesions and conquering the fears that could have held her back. Consider the strength that led her to fight with her dominant hand, and then fight for that hand, in the service of an obstinate and ardent notion. No one was going to pry her away from what she loves. Joining me now is ESPN senior writer Bonnie Ford. Bonnie, thank you again for making time for us. Always a pleasure. Thank you. So... With this story, very well reported, but uh, the first off, what amazed me about the story was, sadly, how forgotten this story seemed to be in the everyday sports talk. And I only say that uh, for two things. One, I remember in 1993 when Monica Seles was stabbed, and I felt like there was news every week on what was going on with Monica Seles in that case and everything. And... In the same vein, this wasn't someone who we just, oh, look what happened, like they what they could have been. This was a Wimbledon champion. And is the fact that this sort of kind of became a little bit in the, you know, the mainstream sports vernacular, this became a little bit anonymous. Was this one of the reasons why you sort of wanted to pursue this story? I was really intrigued by it from the start. And you're right. We live in, in a time when it seems like a especially a high-profile criminal case involving an athlete would be all over the place. But there's a couple of reasons why it went under the radar for a while. One was that from the start, the, the reports, especially English language reports out of the Czech Republic about what was going on were very scarce. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not like our system where you can go and request a police report and, and a 911 call and talk to uh, information officers. They, they just don't work that way over there. It was also the Christmas holidays and, uh, and Petra herself really wanted from the very, very start to put that moment behind her. She wanted to advise her fans and her followers of her status how she was doing and and her recovery to an extent. Uh, But she was also asked by investigators not to talk about this. And that's something she's still observing to this day in terms of the blow by blow of what exactly happened in her flat on that day. Mm -hmm. Do you think though, from a pure, well, you say how basically she sort of controlled the narrative and was sort of asked to not go further, which is great for her in the sense that, do you think that not having the world or everyone sort of constantly checking in with her, do you think that sort of helped with her physical recovery? I do. And again, a couple different dynamics here. She was very determined not to be seen as a victim. And we hear that, of course, from many survivors of attacks like this, that this is important to them in their mental outlook. She she didn't know uh, there was a point at which she was, I think, a little bit uncertain as to how much use she would get back uh, in in her hand, whether she would be able to play at the same level again. But from everything that I've understood from her and from the people close to her, 
that wasn't um, her uncertainty was less than you might have thought. Mm-hmm. She, with all of the mental discipline of an elite athlete, she was determined to come back. Uh, she was determined to do almost to a fault everything that the doctors and physical therapists were telling her to do. And, you know, as we saw, was able to come back earlier than they thought was possible. It's almost interesting, though, that that's actually whenever I read about an, in, an athlete coming back from an injury in that laser focus that you just mentioned, like that athlete, that elite pro athletes have it's almost a greater challenge because you need to not just achieve drive, but balance because you don't want to do too much and push yourself too hard. So many stories of, Oh, well their rehab was delayed because, you know, they tried to do too much, like to try to be like the ultimate, you know, rehab patient, which often is, it ends up being a terrible rehab patient. That's very true. So in her case, she was able to do general fitness work, obviously. She was able mm-hmm. to run and, and sit on a stationary bike and uh, also do court movement. In fact, before she could even hold a racket, she was doing lateral movement on court, just making sure that the rest of her body was fit uh, when and if she could come back. And then uh, she used various ways to get her, her fingers and her hand back into shape. Uh, there were splints and, and passive movement where you move the fingers of one mm-hmm. hand with the other. There was electro-stim treatment, which was very, very important in her case. And then what surprised me, I guess, is that once she put a racket in her hand, that was the PT. That right. was her therapy. That was what doctors said. That's the best thing for you. And she started out not hitting balls at all, and then hitting foam balls, and then gradually working up to being able to hit a proper ball. But yes, to answer your question, there was a point where she overtrained, so to speak. Mm -hmm. She was so eager to get back uh, to normal that she worked her fingers too much, and there was some swelling and stiffness and a little bit of concern on the part of her surgeon. But it did calm down, and uh, she was back, you know, at a point where she knew she could play by mid to late April. So about four months after the attack. Now, the other part of this that I always find uh, that is interesting in any of these stories, not just with a celebrity, but any sort of, I guess, a newsworthy tragedy or event is the other difficult part is you're never really recovering on your own terms because when something like that happens, you whether it's brought up, if it's newsworthy, it's brought up when you least expect it from places you can't always predict. And has that part of her recovery, like the mental part, as as her being a celebrity and how you profiled her ability to, you know, really speak more eloquently and thoughtfully to the media, has that helped her a lot more in her ability to deal with things like this? I know you also mentioned how she prepared for how to speak to this when she went back and was interviewed, uh, you know, for press conferences. So has the, as the mental part of being able to address it when asked, is that something that is still a concern for her? I think she is really very comfortable now in, in the spaces that she needs to discuss it. And she also is smart enough and, and worldly enough to understand that, we, the press corps, are going to ask about this at certain junctures, and that if she was able to explain as fully as she could, that that would be enough, and that then we move on to tennis, and she gets to talk about tennis, which is really what she wants to talk about. So she didn't put any pressure on herself, I don't think, to be uh, you know, a role model, so to speak, one of those most overused phrases in our business. Um, she was focused on her own recovery. She was focused on living up to um, the expectations and hopes, I think, of, of those closest to her. And there, she's not granted a whole lot of uh, one-on-one interviews about mm-hmm. this. Uh, there have been a few, but... Uh, she's pretty, um, she 
she's pretty definite about the areas that she doesn't want to go. One, of course, is what we've already talked about, which is the specific events. Right. And then in terms of her mental, psychological uh, preparation, if you will, she'll go a certain distance and then she wants to keep the rest private. Right. And, and I think having that private space, you can imagine for someone whose actual physical space was invaded, mm-hmm. um, having that private space is very important to her. Sure. You chronicle um, her sl- or kind of her sort of slow steps to being able to be alone, like whether it was, you know, take a shower, eventually get your own uh, apartment. Like, does she have any lingering effects from this in the sense that is she like have like an abundance of security now in her life? She does not. That was another uh, thing that surprised me a little bit when when we spoke, because here you have someone who is, on the one hand, you know, has fears and phobias, very understandably, uh, at the outset about being alone. But she also does what she does for a living in a very exposed space with a camera on her all the time with thousands of people watching Mm-hmm. and millions more watching on television. So not a heck of a lot of privacy there. Right. But she did not want uh, a bodyguard, and she made that decision fairly early on. She had a security guard posted at her room when she was in the hospital after her surgery. And from then on, she relied really on the people around her to, to make her feel safe whether it was her family, her coaches, who were very instrumental. And then at tournaments, you know, we mentioned Monica Stellis, tournament security has gotten tighter and tighter. Mm-hmm. Not to say that nothing ever happens, and every once in a while an errant fan will run onto the court. <laughs> but security is very visible. Security is accompanying players when they're walking from uh, the locker room to the court. And she felt that was enough. And again, I think she found strength in making that decision for herself that she wasn't going to have, and this is my word, not hers, a crutch, which she would then have to discard at some point possibly. Yeah. You could argue how empowering that would be to be like, I'm, I'm my own security. Like I can handle this on my own. Not that like she's going to be constantly attacked, not to say that way, but that it's empowering to get beyond it, to not have some sort of, physical presence to remind her of what happened of every moment to remind her. Right. And look, you know, every uh, athlete of that stature, uh, I think has to kind of accept as part of their job that they're going to attract unwanted attention, Mm -hmm. whether it's in person or on social media. And so they, they kind of, I think they harden um, their minds and their personalities. They understand that that's, a risk, but they don't overblow it in their minds. Otherwise they couldn't do what they do. So, well, the key to recovery is something that, um, you know, staying focused and drowning out all the noise, which, which you chronicled, but how did Petra react to some of the things you talked about, the accusations that the attack and injury just weren't as real as they were saying they was. It was very frustrating for her. And again, she was the one that drove that decision to put the pictures of her hand uh, out into the public realm, Mm -hmm. which still blows me away to this day, because as we all know, pictures on the internet live forever. Yes. And uh, that picture has been republished over and over and over and over, uh, particularly in the accounts in the Czech Republic. And it's hard to look at. Uh, I covered criminal courts earlier in my career, and I, you know, read and saw a lot of pretty gruesome um, imagery about uh, on the crime beat. Mm-hmm. But this one was hard for me to look at. Uh, yeah. I had to force myself to do that in order to feel that I was reporting accurately. And her surgeon um, what, and and the people around her, I think, also supported that decision because. They understood how frustrated she was, and they were indignant on her behalf. And the surgeon told me with absolutely no equivocation that these were defensive wounds. Mm-hmm. There's no way in the world that someone could, you know, hurt themselves in this way. And uh, so 
it was a unique uh, approach, I have to say. I, I, again, I think it speaks to her strength and determination and uh, really wanting the story, as much as she could tell, wanting the story to be out there in a truthful manner. So how, in, with your reporting, how bad were the insults and the accusations fly? Were they that bad that it, that she made this decision or was it like, I think they're going to get that bad. So I'm going to make this decision to put the pictures. So, it was more in the rumor and innuendo uh, category. Mm-hmm. You know, there's tabloid press everywhere. And uh, I don't think it, overwhelmed her it just disturbed her it bothered her right and she thought very carefully about um the timing and and decided to wait until after wimbledon and before the u.s open at a point where she was not um you know trying to play in the grand slam event and uh felt that that would put to rest a lot of a lot of the, these rumors and, and some of which made their way into press, but I think some of it, well, she was also just hearing back channel. Yeah. It seems like it was the equivalent of, you know, instead of just volleying back and forth here and letting you know, eventually I'm going to win this. I'm just going to whiz an ace right by you and just end this discussion right now. <laughs> well, that's, that's a good uh, analogy. Uh, this, the pictures do speak for themselves. I don't think yeah. they entirely quieted, speculation about the case and, mm-hmm. and for the simple reason that there was no progress on the case for so long right. and people just couldn't understand it. I mean, I didn't understand it very well. It's a crime that happens in a small town and, uh, you know, it, it seemed improbable from far away that there was there were no suspects, mm-hmm. uh, but then clearly there was a breakthrough sometime last spring and uh, a gentleman is now in custody. Now, I mean, I know you, you mentioned how try to, you know, quickly explain it to the readers, how, what people in the, in the United States may be used to in hearing and seeing and being exposed to and learning about a criminal proceeding and is different than it is in the Czech Republic. Now that one of the, in, as you mentioned earlier about the um, authorities saying like, Hey, Petra, please don't, talk about this all the time and but as it moves to a potential trial or with someone a person of interest in custody is her camp more like that this listen this won't change that it happened so we're not super interested really we're just moving trying to get back to where we were or is petra more like i have an interest in justice because it seems that everyone in her circle may be interested in justice for her but is she as interested as they are I would say that she, of course, is interested in making sure that this individual, uh, if charges are substantiated, does not do this again to someone else. Mm-hmm. It's a very simple, direct thought and wish on her part. And then, again, she she does not want this person to be part of her story any more than he has to be. Right. She understands and she's realistic that there's no biography of her is going to be complete without a description of what happened. Yeah, it's going to and be in her Wikipedia it, page forever. Right. And it's and it has it altered the trajectory of her career in, in ways that, you know, none of us could have predicted. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, you know, I tried to make the point in the story that no one would wish this on themselves or on anyone else. But she took it and and ran with it, so to speak. Uh, and I, I always think to myself, like, what if she had tripped going down the stairs and cut her hand on, you know, a broken bottle and had the same injury and, you know, recovered from that? How would we be um, treating this differently? How would she have treated it differently? Right. And I think that the the difference in the power that she chose to seize was that she was not going to let some outside external force uh, take away the career in the game that she loves. And that Mm -hmm. gave her a certain strength uh, that powered her through her recovery and 
clearly has led to tremendous momentum for her on the court mm -hmm. in the last year. How is the uh, the rest? How is the women's tennis community re uh, re reacted and rallied to her around this? I mean, here's someone. Uh, yes, it's it's you know a coworker if you want to use that term, but this is someone that also you know there are probably some people that won tournaments that would have never won them had she not been around. Had she been around. Well, she's almost uniquely well-liked in, in uh, the locker room, in the WTA locker room. And I think it's because she does have a very appealing and, and kind and genuine personality. Mm -hmm. But she's also given to these private gestures. Uh, it was very touching to me that Simona Halep, you know, who finally breaks through and wins her first Grand Slam event in Paris uh, a couple weeks ago, had lost three major finals before that. And she gets unsolicited these texts from Petra saying, hey, hang in there. You know, it's going to happen. You're working hard and just keep it up. So here's someone who, again, has a career-threatening injury who's telling a, a, a colleague mm -hmm. uh, that it's going to happen for her. Uh, that You don't see that every day. Yeah. And... She's won uh, the sportsmanship award that the players select six out of the last seven years. So I think there were, you know, people wanted her to come back and, and have a happy ending for her own sake. But I think it also meant something larger to people in that uh, you can't read that story without having that thought of, you know, there for the grace of whatever go I, mm -hmm. you know, we're all vulnerable. We, random things can happen and, and alter our lives and our trajectories. And so I think in a greater sense, people were rooting for her because um, it, it showed that the individual can overcome that kind of, um, you know, that, that unwanted intervention right. in your life. Now her hand surgeon, uh, Radic Kebrel, did I get that? that did I come even remotely close on that one? It's actually uh, Keberly. Keber oh, so that is. the closest I can come. Keberly, okay. Dr. Keberly. It seems that her surgeon has become, in a way, if you look him up, is now sort of like this, a celebrity in all this, almost like the rock star of hand surgeons. <laughs> uh, well, as I, I relate in the story, he was awfully nervous about um, performing this surgery, maybe nervous isn't the wrong word. I think he felt a huge responsibility in performing this surgery on someone who was so well known. Um, and, and obviously, her hand is the tool of her trade. Mm -hmm. uh, so the way he tells it, he, he has treated many athletes. Uh, he's treated a lot of the Czech tennis players for various hand and wrist injuries and but he had never had the chance to see a high-level tennis tournament until Petra invited him to Wimbledon last year oh. to watch her. Wow. And um, so he, he arrives on site and is then informed by um, one of Petra's communications people that there's a few people, a few reporters that might want to talk to him. Oh, <laughs> before he knew it, he was doing TV interviews and so forth. So I want to stress that he... He did not seek out this spotlight. Uh, I think he his satisfaction in this is completely derived from seeing Petra happy at work again and, and doing so well. And uh, they have, you know, the kind of relationship you can imagine that where he really cares about her as a person. And uh, they communicate frequently. And I believe he's going back to Wimbledon this year. Uh, to see her again. So he was very, very helpful, not only to me, but to many reporters in understanding the extent of the injuries and what needed to happen for them to be repaired and heal. And uh, that went a long way toward solving some of this information vacuum as well. So I, I, I can't say enough about the guy. I think he's really a very special physician. We sort of seems like he came like one of those in the modern era, like the accidental rock star in the age of demand for information. Like his, 
his number one hit was the fact that I could talk about this better than anybody because I did it. True. And it also gave me a new appreciation for the anatomy of the hand. You know, we don't Mm -hmm. think about it. I was looking at medical diagrams and I had no idea that we all have two flexor tendons in each finger and, um, you know, or that nerves can be repaired in surgery. I, you know, I was a very ignorant about this. So yeah, may we never need to know that about ourselves. Yeah, really. So the other thing that comes across that you say about the sportsmanship award and the way that how, how she's universally liked is, um, she comes across, Petra comes across as very humble throughout your story. And you even point out how she and her father sort of share like a self-deprecating sense of humor. But it sounds at one point that she even, even she dares to sound almost like a little bit perplexed slashed impressed with herself that she was able to get back to the top 10 in a year. Like, is that, is that still like, does she, she's not what she wants to be obviously, but she still has to be, does she wear that? Is she wearing more of the what's next sort of vibe? Or is it more like, I'm still pretty impressed what I've done so far. Like I'll get there, but the rate that I did it is pretty impressive. So this is the great quality that elite athletes have. And my favorite saying about this, and I I repeat it to journalism classes whenever I speak to them, is that elite athletes are not like the rest of us. And it's not just about physical uh, ability. It's about the way their brains are wired. And that really came through in, in her journey, I think. She had a dance. You know, she had to contemplate, okay, you know, my career might never be the same. She had to contemplate that, and she took uh, university classes and kind of, you know, kept that option tucked away in one part of her mind. But she also never wavered in, you know, I'm going to come back. So it's, it's a balancing act that a lot of us couldn't probably pull off. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, she has surprised herself, I think, in the rate of her recovery and, and how well she's playing. She's always, you know, she's struggled with consistency, I guess is the best word throughout her career, because her game is so big and aggressive and high risk that, you know, when she's good, she's very, very good. And when she's not so good, it really shows. Um, and that's why she plays so many three set matches. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of like the three-set match mentality, uh, playing a lot of three-set matches means that, yeah, you've had uh, some kind of lapse mm-hmm. or the other player has you know, outplayed you for a stretch, but then you've dug yourself out of that uh, and gotten to a third set after either you know winning or losing the first or second set. Right. And I think that really applies to the... Um, to how she dealt with this incident as well. Um, Her new normal, which is a phrase that I repeat a couple times in the story, I mean, being a winner is normal for her, let's Mm -hmm. face it. But she's winning, I think, at a a rate that she couldn't have predicted, five tournaments this year uh, on three different surfaces. Right. And putting herself back into the conversation for for Wimbledon uh, four years after she won her second title. I mean, we're seeing a lot of careers uh, in both on the women's and men's side extended a little more than they used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, I think, you know, if she had, even if she were making this comeback, in air quotes, without having been injured, without having been attacked, I think we would all be sitting up and paying attention. Right. So in the end, while... Kvitova said the attack took her from tennis, which was something she loved. Um, is getting back to tennis where you feel she will find her peace and she's there, or is it winning these majors again that will she'll finally find her peace? Boy, I think, again, the dance of I won't be happy unless blank happens mm-hmm. or... I have to be happy because I am where I am. Yeah. That's she's going to continue to do that. But the fact is that before the attack, when she hired uh, her current coach, uh, Yuri Vonick, 
she told him, I want to win another major. That's why I'm sticking around. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think I can. I want to. I need to, et cetera. And uh, that, you know, obviously goes for a lot of players. I think she feels that her best shot is going to come on grass, although given the way she's played on clay and hard courts this year, hmm. who knows? Right. Uh, she hasn't, you know, she's gone deep in, in other majors as well. But Wimbledon is, it all begins and ends at Wimbledon for her. That mm-hmm. That is, uh, as it has been for many players, the, the, the jewel that she sees in the distance that she wants to put her hands around. Well, that's, I mean, it's amazing what she's been able to do so far. We'll definitely be watching this tournament, and I wouldn't be surprised to see her in the mix for others for the rest of the season. Uh, nor would I. Bonnie, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Always a pleasure, as I said. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories Podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll be back soon with more Double Truck Stories Podcasts.